I usually give you an overview of some of the subjects that we're going to have today. Um, they're all very different, a lot of them on how to deal with grief, the science certainty principle, um, a lot of questions about the relationship between the larger consciousness system and us as individual uh, individuated units. So there's um, some varied questions here. The MBT users, there's various questions from the forum. But I'll start with Greg's question, Earth as a Kindergarten. Greg is saying, I'm looking to understand better the process of evolution individuals might go through from one experience packet to the next. If the Earth is a sort of PMR kindergarten, would it be possible for you to identify specific lessons this kindergartner kindergarten would focus on versus a higher school? Also, do you know roughly what the average number of times a student would come here before being finished? if in fact they are ever finished? Well, you know, I characterize this um, physical reality, this virtual reality as a kindergarten or a preschool. And I do that just to emphasize the fact that most of us have an awful lot to learn, that uh, the average person walks around uh, being driven by fear and ego and belief, the large majority of their choices tend to be driven by fear and ego and, and belief, expectations, you know, needs, wants, desires, all that stuff tends to be the drivers of most people's choices. So that's why I characterize it as a, as a preschool or an elementary school, a kindergarten, something like that, because most of us, the great majority of us are not real advanced students as far as uh, becoming love goes. We've got a long way before we get to that point. But actually, uh, to be more accurate, our virtual reality isn't limited just to kindergarten students. Students of all qualities, of all levels of evolution, come here to learn. It's just that the vast majority happen to be at the elementary level of, of uh, becoming love. And though there are, there are some that are you know, the, a step above that and less that are a step above that and even less that are a step above that and so on, uh, to where we have some very highly evolved uh, consciousness still coming here. So actually our virtual reality is for all levels of consciousness. It's not just an elementary school. Because when you, when you get to the point where your own personal consciousness has a fairly decent amount of quality, then you start to need, you have a need or, or you ha it, it's the natural transition for you to begin to teach, for you to begin to uh, help others. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you uh, write a book or um, you know make videos. It means that you just become a, a um, an inspiration to the people around you. That may be 
you know, that may be the extent of it. You just are a good example, someone that makes other people feel pulled up, makes other people feel uh, relaxed, makes other people feel that they just like being around you because your energy is just so good. That is a teacher too. That just doesn't have to be lectures to make you a teacher or books to make you a teacher. So there are those that come back and just interact with us just to, to show what a, uh, a highly evolved consciousness is like, the kind of joy yeah. they're happy all the time, that they're all open and uh, things work well for them. Even though they have adversity to deal with, they just deal with it as a matter of course and everything uh, seems to always be right with them, for them, and by them. So these people come back. And the more you evolve, the more ability you have to teach, given, me, given this broad definition of teaching that I've just mentioned. So this reality frame is really for all levels of consciousness to come here. It's not like our school system where you're only in, you can only stay in kindergarten so long. See, in our school system, the way we think of schools, that uh, after you've been in kindergarten for a year, you're done with kindergarten. Okay? You're just not going to get a whole lot more out of stacking those blocks or um, you know, playing with the, with the toys of kindergarten. Now you need to move on to first grade and second grade, where you're learning to read about uh, you know, run, spot, run, you know, Dick and Jane. Um, that sort of thing. And eventually you outgrow that. You can't stay there like for five or six years reading runs, you know, run, spot, run. Um, you know, Jane walks up the hill. Dick walks up the hill. That uh, gets old. You get beyond that. And just stand, doing that year after year after year uh, doesn't, doesn't pay for you. You don't learn much. But our consciousness evolution in this schoolhouse is not like that. It's not that you're here for a short period, you learn everything that you can possibly learn here, and then you're gone. This is more like uh, the old uh, one-room schoolhouse where you had the preschoolers all the way up to the advanced, uh, you know, I guess, and then it would be the high schoolers that uh, were all in one room, all interacting with each other, and all helping each other. So if you think back to the, to the, uh, I don't know, I guess it would be uh, you know, 1800s, very early 1900s, probably out in the country. You had these one-room schools where all the students of all the various levels were all interacting and all helping each other to learn and grow up. It's like that than the kind of schools that we're used to. So um, I'd say thinking of it in the idea that we're here, we learn specific lessons, and then we need to graduate and go someplace else is really not a good way to look at it. Okay, it it's, uh, it's more like the old time school. So let's see, what's the average number of uh, times a student would have to, have to um, cycle through here before finishing it? And Donna added that if it can be finished, a uh, uh, little end of that to your question. Um, uh, which is a very good thing to add, Donna. You know, that's, that is a, the key point. You know, you don't really finish so much as you change uh, what you're doing here. 
instead of in the beginning it's just about you it becomes more and more about others um anyway i don't know the answer to that i've heard others uh, mostly eastern uh, yogis and so on talk about thousands tens of thousands of uh, cycles through this system is not uncommon but to me it's really not an important number it really doesn't matter you know so i've never really tried to um, tried to find out what that number is or or not it does it just isn't important because What's important is being here, making the choices and making the best choices you can. Getting rid of that fear, getting rid of that ego. That's what's important. How many cycles that takes? Not so important. That's only news that an ego can use. It's uh, comparative, uh, trying, to, trying to find out where am I on the scale? How long do I have before graduation? How am I doing? Uh, it's that sort of uh, self-assessment. And that's your ego talking. That's the, you know, I want to know where I am. Am I doing well or am I behind? You know, should I pat myself on the back and say, congratulations, uh, I'm really, um, you know, pretty grown? Or should I say, uh-oh, I'm in deep trouble here. You know, I better really get serious. You know, which is it? And it really doesn't matter. You see, it, um, you just do the best you can. You make the best choices you can. You're always trying to grow to whatever extent you can. And playing yourself comparatively to other people is uh, not a useful exercise for the most part. So I would say just kind of roughly without uh, being, um, without trying to be too accurate, but orders of magnitudes, I would say many thousands of experiences before you get to the point where you are highly evolved enough to spend most of your time teaching. That doesn't necessarily mean to where you're ready to exit. Because of all the various reality frames I've been to, I haven't been to any that I thought was really a whole lot better than the one we're in. They're mostly different, and they have their ups and their downs. You know, their good points, their advantages and disadvantages. But basically, this is a really good system that we're in. So there's not a lot of reason to go someplace else. It's, there's plenty of things to do here because most of the people are in an elementary stage of their consciousness evolution. There's always something to do to help other people. It's not like you get to the point that this place just doesn't have anything for you anymore like you do when you're in second grade and you're done with you know, C-spot run. You, you get to the point that just doesn't have anything for you anymore, but that's not the way it is here. Here there's, there's always something else to do. And because you know the ropes here, you understand how this place works because you've been here many times, it makes you more effective at how you can help. So this becomes then a natural place to come because your effectiveness is higher. If you really wanted to, you could go in other, um, other reality frames. At that point, you're more likely to have a wider array of choices because you'd have a wider array of knowledge of what's out there. If you wanted to uh, hop to other frames, not a problem. But mostly, you would find them similar to this as far as this one fact, and that is you'd have an array of, of learners from the very elementary to the, the very wise and the very evolved. And the, the very elementary always outnumber 
you know, hugely outnumber the very wise and evolved. And I think I've mentioned it in one of these sessions before. The only time that I've been to a to a, a reality frame that basically where almost everybody, well, I'll even say everybody was highly evolved. It turned out that to go there, being there, and making it your place you're going to learn would be a big mistake. There weren't enough challenges. There weren't enough, there wasn't enough, uh, um, I don't know, there wasn't enough things going on that challenged you to grow. And what happens if you're no longer focused on the challenges to grow, you start to slip slide away. You know, it's, um, you kind of kick back and everything's easy, if you will. It's very collegial. You share and, and discuss and interact, but there's not so much challenge around. And without that challenge, it's easy to just kind of relax and slip away. And before you know it, your ego's crept back, your uh, self-focus has crept back, and you actually end up de-evolving in that kind of an environment. So it's it uh, turned out that after a, a time there that I spent there just to see what was going on, uh, my assessment was that's not a good place to be in that kind of environment where everybody is very grown. Most of the challenge, most of the opportunity to learn is places like this. Um, given what you said about uh, no matter where you go, or almost no matter where you go, that the unevolved usually vastly outnumber the evolved, um, is that, would you expect that condition to remain uh, pretty much all the time? Or is that something that maybe over a very long time period, the universe would no longer be like that? Okay, now you have to be careful about the word universe. You know, when we say universe, everybody thinks about our physical universe, which is just one small virtual reality in a, in a bigger system. So you mean that eventually the larger consciousness system will yeah, everything, be yeah. like that? Yeah. Um, I think that it's probably going to always be this way. And the reason I say that is that I think there's always new uh, consciousness coming into the system that needs to evolve. Um, I, know, I guess my own experience is that it's always been that way. The places that I've been always seem to be a lot of, uh, a lot of struggling going on. Perhaps we would get to a point that there wasn't as much struggling going on, and uh, maybe we reached the capacity of the larger conscious system to create many more, uh, you know, uh, IUOCs, and perhaps the whole level would drift up uh, measurably. But then we would we would have this problem in that the challenges then would start to disappear, and as the challenges would start to bis disappear, we would begin to maybe de-evolve slip away from that until the challenges reappeared again. So it's a, it's a point like, um, just like entropy itself, you know, one never gets to the point where your entropy is zero. Uh, one never gets, you know, past the speed of light. All you get is asymptotic to those things. You can get closer and closer and closer, but you never actually get there. Sort of like going to infinity is the same way. You can never get to infinity because infinity doesn't actually exist as a place. It's just an idea because wherever it is you are, 
you can always add some to that and you know is there something bigger so infinity doesn't actually exist it can't exist it's just an abstract concept but you can always approach it you can always get bigger and bigger and bigger but however you are you can always add one and that means well where you are is an infinity and then you go to that place where you added one you can always add one more and so on so uh, i think our overall larger consciousness system may eventually the average quality of consciousness will rise will probably go up but i think there'll always be new coming in at the bottom there'll always be new new challenges new things to learn and who knows after we get to the point that we uh, that we as a system are more highly evolved maybe we'll find ourselves as one part of a larger system a larger system than that you know there may be multiple larger consciousness systems out there of which then we would finally grow up enough to be interactive with and then we would be talking about lowering the entropy you know of you know among multiple systems i don't know now that's just wild conjecture that has no basis in my experience or fact either one but we don't know you know we just don't know what might be on our our own system because we can't you can't go there that's the bacterium in the stomach that doesn't know about sunshine you know we just can't get there so that doesn't mean that nothing's there just because we can't get there or that it isn't important it just means that it's outside of our perception outside of our knowing outside of our experience therefore it's outside of our truth and uh, so we don't know you know it could be something like that thank you the next question comes from William from your MBT forum. It's on spiritual teachers and channeling. He asks, what are teachers up to these days? I guess he means other than those who have derived a big theory of everything. Um, he asks about um, how do you tell which channels out there are actually real? Um, He's touching on some questions that I think we covered, you covered, in your workshop in Spokane, former Bubbles of Enlightenment. Formerly, there were many spiritual teachers um, making an effort to teach love and that the Internet has brought these together and made it more possible to... Uh, have a momentum on this spiritual teaching. So he says that it seems like there, there is a lot of spiritual momentum these days, many different books and videos, and that's as a result of what you described in that workshop in Spokane as having you know all come together. Can you speak to some of this and, and comment on it, what spiritual teachers and channels are? Uh, mean sure. these days sure there are uh, you know again as we evolve in this larger system the options are to become teachers and you don't have to come back and reincarnate in this virtual reality in order to be a teacher you can be a teacher in other reality frames or you can be a teacher uh that exists outside of this virtual reality, in a different virtual reality, if you will. 
And these teachers tend to be what we called channeled. Okay, and there is a, a group of such entities that uh, uh, go by the name of the teachers. And they try to help and teach by intuitively connecting with individuals. Now, this, in, this intuitive connection with an individual is what we, from this virtual reality, call a channel or channeling. That's somebody who um, opens their mind and gets a data stream, gets information from a non-physical source. In other words, information that's origin isn't in this physical uh, reality universe. So we call that channeling, and it's a real thing in that the, the information is indeed there and it is outside of them. It's not just something they're, they're making up. They're getting information, at least the, the good ones are. Of course, they're probably channelers who really are just making it up as they go. But uh, many are not. Many are getting a, a data stream. And if that data stream happens to be um, information to share, in other words, someone that's teaching them, and explaining the nature of reality and explaining how to grow up and explaining how to become love and so on, then um, that's what you're talking about as, a, as, as this channeled, uh, what did you give, uh, Bashar, Abraham, Hicks, et cetera, uh, is what you said uh, in your question. Uh, it, it comes out like that. Now, these these teachers try to appeal to different kinds of groups. So if you have a group that's mainly um, well-educated and intellectual, you may get a Seth, as in Seth Speaks. If you have a group that is more uh, uh, blue-collar, uh, working, working class um, sort of sociology, then you'll get uh, someone who speaks more in that terminology, using that language and those metaphors that fit that. If you uh, have, if you're in different cultures, you you will get uh, a teacher who will speak in the metaphors of your culture, so that it's easier for you to understand. So you see, there are many of these these teachers that are working simultaneously in in lots of different paths. Point isn't if they were all, um, you know, well-educated, large vocabulary, uh, um, intellectual channels, they'd only appeal to about, what, 10 or 20 percent of the world's population. That wouldn't be useful. Growth is important and, and works well and, and uh, is effective at every strata and every uh, what segment or section of our world's sociology. So there's lots of quote channels unquote out there and they have lots of different target audiences and generally they will say things that help that audience take a step forward in the right direction. That does not mean that everything they say is accurate. Everything they say uh, is uh, exactly uh, true the way they say it. There's a couple of, of issues here. One, from their viewpoint, they're saying what will have 
the most effect on the most people as far as the effect being helping people see a bigger picture so that they can increase the quality of their consciousness, take that next step forward. So two, to be effective, you have to talk in the metaphors of the people you're talking to. Okay? And you need to not tell them things that they're not ready to process. So you know, what they say is not always going to be um, accurate in that sense, but it is engineered to be effective. Sometimes being accurate, telling too much is ineffective. Okay? If people aren't able to process the information, then you stop at a point where you know, they can still process it. So that's one thing. Secondly, these are all coming as an intuitive data link to somebody. Now that intuitive data link is fraught with lots of, of interpretation difficulties. If the concepts aren't very familiar to that individual in their own historical database, they will have trouble translating it. They will have trouble, tur trouble turning it from what their intuition gets to um, text in their own language, whatever that language is. So if it's being turned into English, they'll have a hard time taking the thoughts they get telepathically and turning those into English sentences. And that interpretation will carry their own, their own ideas, their own biases, their own beliefs, their own fears. They will interpret based on their own history, their own, um, what can we say, um, experience space. So that's another reason why what you get is not necessarily accurate. So all in all, I would say that do not, uh, you know, if you're listening to one of these channeled uh, um, individuals, don't necessarily take everything as truth, as face value. You're getting interpretation. You're maybe only getting part of an answer because the majority of people listening aren't ready for more of an answer. Maybe a minority are, but this is trying to do the most good for the most people most of the time. So that's the kind of constraints that are on it. So take it, uh, take it for what you can get out of it. If you listen to these things, listen and see if there's something that, that rings a bell for you, that uh, creates an aha moment, that clarifies your thinking that challenges you in some way to, to grow or see things in a, in a more productive light. If there is, then, you know, use it. If there isn't, then let it be. Don't feel like you need to judge it as to whether or not it's true or untrue or not or what the source is. The source is really irrelevant. What's relevant is how does it affect you? What can you get out of it? What value is there in it for you? And that's really what's important. Now, you, you say that you think that there's a lot more of this going on than there was before. Well, part of that's probably you in that because now you're aware of these things, you're aware of all of this that's going on. And suddenly it seems like there's all these channeled sources from all over. And uh, wow, didn't used to be like that. Part of it's you, and that uh, your awareness becomes uh, 
you know, aware of all these things and it seems like that's a big increase. Well, it is a big increase in your awareness, not necessarily a big increase. Uh, uh, absolutely. That's one thing. Secondly, is these things do, in, you know, psychology and sociology isn't just individuals un, unrelated to each other. It's not a it's not like a bunch of, it's about a bunch of independent individuals. We all share, we interact. So you'll go through periods of time, let's say just in our culture, in Western culture, okay, you'll go through periods of time where these ideas are much more acceptable and much more interesting and there's a whole lot of people really uh, keyed into them. And then you'll go through times where they're not. And that's because we're all netted and we share ideas and attitudes get uh, passed around. So we very well may be at a point where this is increasing and there is more of it. Although, as I recall, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, actually, when I first started looking into this, just as I first started going out to Monroe uh, uh, to uh, study in his lab, there seemed like there was an awful lot of it then, you know, and I I would have had that same idea. Wow, there's a whole lot more of that stuff going on now. I never even heard about it before, and now there's like a dozen that I know of that are doing this channeling thing. Um, is there that much more of it today? I don't really know, but perhaps, because as I said in, in the uh, talk at Spokane, um, we are entering into a new era of possibility here because the Internet has connected us all uh, intellectually. So the sharing of ideas and, and the sharing of attitudes suddenly has become a more viable thing for a subset of the culture, such as would be the, uh, you know, the paranormal or the uh, spiritual or the philosophical or the theological, you know, parts of the culture that are interested in these big picture ideas and including the, the physics and the scientific part of that culture that are interested in big ideas, that we can connect and share those ideas both over the consciousness net and over the Internet as a reinforcement. So I would suspect that there may be growth in this sort of phenomena. And as long as there is someone willing to listen, I think it's a good bet that somebody will be there to teach. So in as much as there are more people, wanting to find out and, and willing to listen, you will have more and more teachers or you will have the same teachers posing as four or five different, um, you know, the same teacher may be, uh, you know, um, voicing Seth and also voicing some other uh, two or three characters that are hitting at different, on, you know, that are focused or aiming at different audiences, different uh, stratas of, of uh you know, of our culture or of different cultures. So it's not just, we, we tend to say, well, okay, we had a Seth Speaks and that's just Seth. Somewhere out there, there's this, this, there's this guy, Seth, and he did this and now he's sitting on a cloud playing a harp someplace and hasn't really done anything since. It's not like that. The Seth has probably, uh, you know, come back to teach under any number of different names. But he says it differently because it's a different audience at a different time. He's already done the Seth one. Okay, that's out there. You can read the books. Uh, now he's maybe doing other ones. And other teachers are like that as well. So these aren't just some separate entities off doing their thing. 
sometimes when people listen to this intuitive information they get about the nature of reality, they have this thought process. They say, oh, I'm getting information. Information always comes from people. Hey, so I'm talking to a people, but it's not coming from this physical reality that I know of, not coming from this universe. Uh, where might it be coming from? And instead of saying, oh, it's from a non-physical, they say, oh, it must be coming from space people. It must be coming from other planets. Okay, I'm talking to the star people in such and such a place because then they may ask, where are you from? Where do you live? Uh, you know, you and the stars? And they may say, yes. Doesn't mean that that's a fact. It just means that that's as good answer as any because, uh, you know, there's all kinds of people who uh, will respond to different kinds of scenarios. So you, you have teachers who will pick any scenario that works in order to transfer this information. Now, how do you tell that it's real, that it's not somebody just having a delusion, uh, making this stuff up or whatever? The only way you can tell is by the quality of the material. Listen to it. Is it about becoming love? Is it about growing up? Or is it about ego stuff? You know, is it about fear things? Is it about becoming superior because now you're one of the inside, you know, knowers of this, uh, you know, man from wherever, you know? And is it about that? You see, that that's appealing to the ego. So what's the material? What's the quality of it? If the quality's good, then does it matter where it comes from? You know, does it matter whether it's a little green man with pointy ears on the other side of the universe or it's uh, from Seth who's out beyond uh, this uh, universe or anything else? It really doesn't matter. You see, so there's no point in really trying to, to follow this kind of information. It's pointless. Listen to it. If it speaks to you and tells you something you can use, well, use it and keep listening. And if it doesn't, Stop listening and let it go. See, it's just that simple. It uh, it doesn't it doesn't really matter. So I've probably answered more questions than you asked, but I think we've hit most of the ones you've asked anyway. So I guess we'll we'll go on. Tom, you have said before that uh, future Earth disasters can be influenced by our collective consciousness versus. Um, natural disasters as defined by our physical laws, and also that both can be tweaked to a degree. Uh, Greg's question is on future disasters. Both you and yourself and other you, both yourself and other remote viewers have predicted possible future disasters at the level that they would affect whole countries and societies. What I've not seen anyone explain fully is the possible scientific cause for such catastrophic disasters. Can you shed some light on this? Well, yes. When you, if you see, okay, if you get information about a disaster, well, that information may come from any number of, of uh, sources, uh, and it may come for any number of reasons. So first, if you are thinking about this, you have to try to understand the, the reason why you're getting this. 
that would be probably the first step. Why am I getting this this information? Uh, perhaps you went out and asked for it. it might be uh, the the uh, less deep answer to why. Well, it's there because I asked for it. Yes, but why why are you getting it? You know, why is this being sent to you? You can ask for all sorts of things, and the things that will be sent to you are basically those things that have possibility of raising the quality of your consciousness and the consciousness of other people. Okay, so you can pretty well um, take that as a, as a uh, kind of a rule of thumb. What you get uh, isn't necessarily just what you ask for, but things that will be helpful to you in your growing up. Now, if it's minor details, if you're just asking, you know, for specific details of a specific thing that doesn't really have any big picture significance to other people, then that's maybe not so true. Then you're probably getting information that's um, just a value to you. But again, if it's not something you can use to grow or better understand, then you probably won't get that either. So things that to get things that will actually make you de-evolve is discouraged. The system doesn't want to do that. It doesn't want to create a, a data stream, you know, that helps the, the, the system de-evolve. So kind of a, a, an evolutionary reason of why this is happening. Now, if you get, let's say you're getting this information on, uh, on big earthquakes or tidal waves or, uh, you know, firestorms or something that's happening. If this is accurate information, then it's going to be because the rule set is supporting it. Now, when I say the rule set supports it, that means that the tension in the in the between the plates is about ready to pop. That there is, you know, reasons why this would happen, or there's going to be a, a huge uh, solar flare, you know, coming out right at uh, toward the Earth. Say, um, these kinds of things are rule set things. They happen just because they happen. There's some statistics involved in them, some chance, but they are uh, things that the rule set has to support. Well, you're not going to get information that there's going to be a huge earthquake if there's absolutely no information from the rule set that there is, you know, that a huge earthquake earthquake is a possibility. Now, that doesn't mean that the earthquake is inevitable exactly at that time. It's just that it's a possibility. Because any information you get about the future is only probable information. It's not what has to happen. It's what could happen. It's what's a possibility. So that's, you know, that answers one of your questions, uh, the relationship between um, the, uh, the scientific cause and the disaster is there has to be a relationship. There has to be a rule set. Uh, science, if you will, that says it's possible, that it's maybe even likely before you're going to get this. Otherwise, it would just be total misinformation if you got something that uh, had zero probability of occurrence and you got it anyway, then you'd be getting misinformation, which is an interesting point. Would that ever happen? Would you ever get just misinformation, somebody telling you something like that when it's just wrong? And the answer to that is, yes, that can happen too. Why would that happen? Why would the larger conscious system tell you a lie? Well, for the same reason it would tell you the truth, because it would be beneficial for 
you increasing the quality of your consciousness. Okay, and maybe I can give you a scenario. Um, let's say that uh, you are a prognosticator, and let's say that you have gotten some some notoriety as a prognosticator. Let's say that uh, you're feeling pretty good about all the you know press and uh, people who come up to you uh, begging you to you know tell them their future and this sort of thing because you're well known and uh, you have a lot of status. You've made a fair amount of money at it. So uh, one day you get this uh, this message about how you know the little green people with pointy ears that live on the dark side of the moon are going to come down and uh, you know have a chat with you in a football stadium at such and such a day and time and you start selling tickets you see well you get there on that day and guess what nobody shows up and now you look like a fool well that would be a well-earned come down from your ego investment in being this a superior person, prognosticator who knows what's going on, you see. That would be get you getting misinformation on purpose because you need it and deserve it. You know, it's just uh, kind of what you need to to uh, refocus yourself uh, in, a, in a more productive direction. So if it turns out that, that you need that kind of a, uh, you know, a slap or you need that kind of an experience that helps wake you up. Now, what I, the one I just gave is rather dramatic, but you might think of similar things that might just fit into almost anybody's life where uh, a little, uh, you know, uh, redirection, <laughs> dramatic redirection might be helpful. Well, then you might get the information to, to, to uh, create that redirection, to create that reassessment of yourself. So yes, you can get information that's just wrong. Now, let's say you start with looking at earth changes and you see earthquakes or you see floods or you see various things. And what you see is, is uh, good information. There is a probability that this will happen. One, that doesn't mean it will happen, just a probability. Two, if this begins to frighten you and you get involved in it from fear, Oh no, there's going to be earthquakes and big floods. I need to move to the mountains. I need to do this. I need to do that. You see, and you start getting all wrapped up in the fear of it. Well, that's a time when you might get some misinformation just to try to bring you back, you know, down to uh, a, a better, more productive state. Or, uh, you may continue to get that fearful information. Oh, yes, you better run to the mountains. Oh, that's not high enough. Climb a tree. No, you need to climb a higher tree. Build the house in the top of the highest tree, you see. And then you do all these things and nothing happens. Oh, gee, I just wasted a whole lot of resources and time, you know, and nothing happened. Well, that would, uh, you know, again, that would be something you'd need and deserve. So just because you get the information, doesn't necessarily mean that this is something that's going to happen. So when you get this information, let's say you get this. Let's say tomorrow you're meditating and suddenly you get all these pictures of earthquakes and floods and stuff and you see the maps and so on. Well, is that because this is highly probable? Because this is only slightly probable? Because I'm being tested to see if this is going to wrap me up in, in fear? Um, why am I getting this? Well, you don't know. You see, nobody's going to tell you, well, here's the test. 
here's the questions you were giving you and here's the answers. You see, that wouldn't help you very much. So you won't know that. You'll just see this. So what do you do about that? Well, you learn from it and say, well, okay, maybe. You decide what you're going to do, how much investment you're going to make in it, and then you go on with your life. See? Just go on with your life. And you realize that, well, if that's going to happen and I happen to be right on the ground that's going to open up and I'm going to drop down into a big crack or I'm going to be in the ground that's going to be 200 feet underwater, well, if that's the way it is, then that's the way it is. You know, I'll recycle. It's not uh, that big a deal. Otherwise, if I get intuition that says, I think I should pack up the car with the family and we ought to go vacation in the mountains this weekend, and you really feel the need to do that, and you think it would be a lot of fun besides, and everyone needs a vacation anyway, well, then go do it, you see. And now you get up there, and if the floods come, all right, you're on high ground. And if they don't, you and your family all drive back down at the end of the weekend and go back home and go to work. Go to school just like you always did. So in other words, you take the information, integrate it into your life. Don't let it push you with fear. And uh, don't take itself, don't take yourself or it that seriously that it begins to drive your choices. Your choices still need to be made out of the idea of making the best choice to raise the quality of your consciousness. That's and your best choice to help other people raise the quality of their consciousness. So that's maybe some perspective on it. Um, lots of those things happen. You know, they're just probable. They may even be misinformation. What can you do about it? Not much. It's like uh, say, well, okay, uh, what's the word? Uh, I'll consider that. I'll take it under advisement. Thank you very much. And then go on with your life. That's the that's the way to uh, approach that. Then be aware. Listen to your intuition. Listen to that intuition. It will tell you often about things, things to avoid. It will tell you sometimes, duck. And you will learn that when you get that strong intuition a certain way, the first thing you should do is duck because there's likely to be something uh, uh, to duck from. That's coming, and and in time you learn to trust that. But now that's different. That's not you being being frightened because of your intellectual interaction with this information, creating fear. So just figure your intuition will let you know what you need to know. And if it's a big disaster and you're meant to be a part of the disaster, and and recycle, well that'll happen that way too. If not. If uh, you continuing through and beyond the disasters is a good thing, then you'll get a message. And whether or not you pay attention to it or not, well, that's kind of up to you. Deciding what, how you feel about it, what you think about it. Uh, the next questions uh, come from William from the MBT Forum and from Polly, and both have to do with the the roots of ego and fear, and also the fear, the connection between fear and anger, and um, what is the mechanism which, in which fear creates anger, and why is this happening, asks Polly. And William's question is more of a 
back in time sort of thing, the roots of um, ego and fear. Do we have any, also, do we have any ego fear in MPMR or is that mostly a PMR thing? Okay. Um, I'll answer that last one first. Uh, often people have the idea that their their ego and fear is a just a physical thing. Okay, that they're, when they're here in this physical reality, in this virtual physical reality, I guess that sounds funny, virtual physical, but you know what I mean. It's a virtual reality that appears physical to us. Okay, that when they're in that reality. Uh, they have this fear and ego, but once they die and get outside of this reality, now they're all grown up beings of love and have, uh, you know, they understand everything and, and, are, and become wise. It's not like that. Your physical body in this physical reality that's just virtual is represents just the constraints on your consciousness. All of your thinking all of your being, all of your fear and anger and, and anxiety and love and caring and, and charity and all, all of that are attributes of your consciousness, not attributes of your avatar. Your avatar is just information. It's just data in a virtual reality. It's a simulation. Okay? It's not alive. It's just information. You are alive. You are consciousness and you must be in a different reality frame than your avatar. The avatar and the consciousness cannot be in the same reality frame. I've mentioned that before. The reason is that the server, if you will, that creates the simulation can't be inside the simulation. The server that creates the simulation has to exist in a reality frame outside of the simulated reality frame. Okay, so that means that a simulation cannot simulate itself is basically what we're saying. This is very you know, um, elementary logic. So because of that, you, the consciousness, cannot be in the same reality frame as you, the avatar, the body, the physical world. The physical universe has to be in a different reality frame than consciousness. Okay, so now you are the actor, you're the consciousness, you make choices. Your avatar, your physical body, just responds to those choices, to your direction. So the fear and the ego that you have is not an, is not an attribute of your avatar. It's not an attribute of the virtual reality. It's an attribute of your consciousness. And when you die, that consciousness carries on. Say when you die, when your physical avatar you know, dissipates and goes away or gets run over by a truck, then you, the consciousness, in your different reality frame, go on. And you are the embodiment of whatever fear and ego and love and compassion that you had when you were expressing that in terms of the actions and thoughts and, and deeds of a avatar. So it's you, the consciousness, that carry that along. So it's not like your anger belongs in the physical and afterwards that's all gone. Now, your specific anger, let's say while you were here in the physical, you were angry about 
what? I don't know. You were angry about bumblebees. Bumblebees made you really angry because you got stung by them sometime. And now whenever you saw a bumblebee, you got really, really lividly angry. Well, once you leave this physical frame, you will no longer feel anger about bumblebees, right? Because there are no bumblebees in this larger consciousness system. But you, the consciousness, will still have same level of capacity for anger, that same um, fundamental uh, um, lower quality of consciousness. It just won't be interpreted in terms of physical reality and the experiences of your avatar. Okay, so yes, specific angers will disappear as you are no longer uh, in the physical because there's, there's no context anymore for those because you're not physical. You've, you're in the transition out of this physical reality. The context for that specific anger is gone, but you have that same capability, that same amount of anger, if you, if you will, the same potential for that anger in your consciousness as you had when you were here. It's just no longer uh, uh, manifested or uh, expressed as something to do with bumblebees. It's just now it's your potential as a consciousness. You have this, this uh, lower quality of consciousness that is yours and goes with you. You incarnate again, and now that, that level of anger may be something else. It won't be bumblebees this time. It'll be whatever it is causes you anxiety and fright and concern in your next um, incarnation. But until you outgrow that anger and get rid of that negativity and that fear, you are going to continue to express it. Okay, now when you're in the transition when you're in the transition reality frame, that's another virtual reality, there is very little there to um, serve as a context for your anger. So even though you were a very angry person in this lifetime, when you are in the transition, your body here is gone, your avatar is, is gone here, um, there's very little to trigger anger during this transition. It's a very calm, peaceful, um, you know, everything is nice. It's, it's all toward relaxation, you know, uh, let everything go. What would we like to try next and why? And it's, it's a not very um, anger-inducing place. So you probably wouldn't find much expression for your anger there. So you may not get angry there, but now you get into your next life and somebody comes up and steps on your toe, you know, uh, uh, you know, sneezes on your food, you know, does something that irritates you. Now the anger swells up because it has a context in which you can express it. Well, you're just expressing your quality of consciousness. So I think that takes care of that, uh, that second question. Um, see, what was the first? Tell me the first uh, part of that again, Donna. The um, is that the root of uh, ego and fear? Where where does um referring back to mankind in the ancient times? Um, when and how did ego and fear develop into something that needed to be overcome? Okay, that's very much the same the same answer that I've already gone over. Is that the fear came with the consciousness? It came as a lower quality of consciousness. It's not that you start when you're in the non-physical that you're this fearless piece of love and then suddenly you get into the physical and you're angry and upset about everything. It's that 
consciousness that first incarnated here, that first found the avatars in this virtual reality to be suitable vehicles as avatars for themselves. When that happened, then they expressed the level of quality of consciousness that they had at the time. And there was ego and fear and belief was expressed there that probably felt like it was new because there really wasn't that much context in which to express it before. But you get into a reality frame like our virtual reality and the context now suddenly is, is hard and fast and it's right there in front of you. It's not so subtle like it is when you're just trading information. Um, so it, it always was there. It's a lower quality of consciousness comes to an avatar. And because this is such a tight rule set in this virtual reality, there's lots of ways uh, in which to give context to that lack of quality. And that comes out in, in anger, among other things, and, and ego. So it was always there. It gets expressed here. Slowly, we're getting rid of it. And when, you, when your avatar dies, you keep inside of you. You keep everything that's at the being level. You lose everything that's at the intellectual level. Okay, all the intellectual stuff, like, you know, the color of your car and, you know, the names of your children, you know, these sorts of things which are, which are in your intellect, things you know, things you can remember, that basically disappears. But you, the quality of you at the being level, your potential, how you are, that changes with every lifetime. You grow up. Hopefully, you're lowering your entropy and becoming higher quality consciousness as you evolve. So your quality is cumulative over your lifetimes. You started when we first said, okay, this uh, virtual reality has finally evolved avatars that we can gain good experience with. We can gain a uh, really excellent experience for our, our uh, growth and lowering entropy with these new avatars called you know, man called uh, you know, humanids. So that uh, was good for us. Otherwise, we were uh, at lesser creatures that gave us a a, a uh, far smaller range of of uh, choices for action. Okay, with with creatures that uh, didn't have the decision space that humans have. When the humans uh, evolved here, and suddenly consciousness had a had an avatar that they could work with that was much more productive, but they brought whatever it is they were with them, whatever quality, whatever they had at the being level, that's what came with them. And that's why this, this virtual reality is so important because until they got into to an avatar, between before they could play an avatar like a human, their context for expressing themselves was very small. They didn't have that much context. It was just data transfer. Not a lot of context for expressing yourself or reaction and interaction. Once you got these avatars, now you could really express yourself in this game called life on planet Earth. And now there was lots of opportunity to express yourself as you really are at your being level. Every day you get opportunities to make choices based on your quality. Before, you still had to make choices based on your quality, but your, the number of choices you had was very small, and the ways in which you could express them was very small. 
because the rule set was very loose. Now you have a lot of rules in this rule set. It's a very tight rule set. That means there's a whole lot of, of details in the interaction that never existed before. We are, we are who we are. And it, uh, our quality doesn't come or go with our incarnation uh, uh, that we play in a, a, uh, a virtual character avatar. Uh, so this is Pali. Uh, I've had one part of the question re related to the fear. Um, I assume that fear is somehow connected to um, anger. Sorry, to anger. Uh, and uh, I was interested in your thought about how anger actually uh, is created by the fear. And, well, anything else you can share? Okay. Um, fear is the fundamental thing. We break down the two major components that that uh, modify our intention and you have fear on one side love on the other okay out of the fear comes things like ego out of ego comes things like fear so i mean not fear comes things like anger okay so we have fear fear creates ego because that's that's the fear that i'm not going to get what i want what i need it's it's the fear that i you know, needs, wants, has to have, desires. So it's all about getting the eye what they want. That's the ego then, uh, which is awareness. Consciousness fundamentally has awareness. And when that awareness is in the service of fear, I'm afraid I'm not going to get something that I want or need, then we have an ego gets born. All right. Now, out of that ego, uh, we get things like anger, anxiety, um, uh, arrogance, you know, all of these kind of personality uh, and behavioral functions then mostly come out of this, this ego. So the fear is at the root. So the reason that you get angry is because I am not getting what I want, because I don't like what happened, because I think, you know, you should have done this instead of that. You're angry because things aren't the way you want them to be. All right, well, why is that? Because you have an ego. The ego says it's all about me, and if things aren't the way I want them to be, damn it, I get angry. You say, well, that's just your ego. If you didn't have the ego, then you wouldn't get angry when things weren't, you know, things uh, didn't suit you. Okay, so the anger is a is a product of fear, but it's two steps back. Anger is a product of ego directly, and then ego is a product of fear. So that's how they're that's how they're related. And the same would go of arrogance or, you know, any other kind of personality, uh, uh, behavioral things that you want. You know, anger is just an example of just, just one of them. Does that answer your question, Polly? Yes, yes, thank you. Uh, maybe one more thought that I have, uh, if you would like to comment on it. Um, I've had this uh, idea that maybe uh, anger comes out of, uh, some pressure that cr gets created if we don't uh, see our fear as a as our fear, basically denying our own fear, maybe can cause this pressure. And it when it boils out uh, of some about no above some limit, then it it gets it's expressed. And uh, the idea was that maybe this is a automatic mechanism that uh, teaches us. Uh, to deal with our fears because it's inevitable that uh, we get we will express it 
and the environment, the people in the environment will then uh, let us know that we are angry or arrogant or something like that. Yeah, that's all true. Yeah, what you just said is a is is true, but that's just you just enumerated one of the paths, and that is that you have you have the fear. The fear creates the ego. Now the fear can be very multifaceted. You know, the the fear um, can maybe just be a general fear, like a fear of not being uh, taken seriously, or fear of not being adequate, a fear of not being uh, competent, a fear of not being loved, a fear of not uh, measuring up or doing what you're supposed to do, a fear of failure. See, these are all related, right? If you think of all those fears I just named, they're all kind of connected and related to, to each other. They're all just little different variations uh, on, a, on a similar kind of thing. And the ego, in service of that fear, what it's primarily doing is creating a story, if you will, that makes the fear not so scary. It's creating a story that uh, pushes the fear kind of out of the out of the sight of the intellect. So now the intellect doesn't have to deal with that fear. They don't have to deal with uh, you know nobody will like me kind of fear because the intellects push that away. And instead, the intellect says, well. Uh, I'll just uh, be in everybody's face. I'll just be there. You know, people won't be able to ignore me because, you know, I will uh, always have the right answer. I'll always do this. I'll always do that. And now you have this behavior, you see, and the behavior then is an expression of ego, but it's it's an expression of ego because it's trying to cover the fear. It's trying to make it easier for the person to deal with the fear. So yes, it's like that. So you know that that behavior could be that you are just extra nice to everyone. You suck up to everyone. Every time somebody comes in, you kind of bow and scrape and, and suck up to that person because you really, really, really want everybody to like you, and that's the way you think people will like you. And, of course, because you suck up to everyone, nobody likes you. And that just makes the fear worse, and you see it just it's a feedback sort of thing. So you learn from it. You learn that it doesn't work. It's not a... You know, it's not a profitable uh, strategy. And if all you do is then change one ego uh, device for another, all right, I won't suck up to everybody. I'll try to bully everybody. That's it. They'll all like me because, you know, I'll be the tough guy, so they'll all have to be nice to me. Well, you'll find that won't work either. Still nobody likes you. They just treat you differently. Instead of treating you with scorn, now they treat you with respect, with respect but it's a fearful respect. They don't like you. They just want to stay out of your way. Before, they didn't like you because you, uh, you know, didn't seem to have any substance. You uh, would suck up to everyone whenever you, you had. You had, like, there was nothing there inside you. You were a shell. If you just change a, your ego uh, deals with the fear, you haven't gained anything. So what you need to learn, and you're right, the process is you, you should become aware of the feedback you're getting. This isn't working. Sucking up to everybody isn't working. Bullying everybody isn't working. Well, what am I going to try next? If I'm going to try some other behavior, you may find a behavior that actually helps you interact better with people. Okay, a more civilizing behavior. Eh, you don't suck up too much. You don't bully too much. You're somewhere in the middle, and that seems to work pretty good, but you still haven't done anything to get rid of the fear. You've just found a more suitable 
strategy for hiding from the fear. Okay? But you still have a lot of anxiety. You see, you still have anger. You just don't express it. You still feel like you, you want people to like you, but you don't express that as sucking up. You still, you know, um, want people to take you seriously, but you just don't, you maybe don't express it as the bully. But it doesn't mean you've changed a bit. You've just gotten more civilized in the way that you interact with people, slicker, if you will. That's what happens to most of us as we physically mature, as we grow up, not in terms of consciousness, but just terms of of uh, we grow up here, our avatar grows up, okay, just physically getting older, is we get slicker and slicker at the way we uh, deal with our fears. So most of us eventually get so slick that we can go through an entire lifetime and never even notice that we've got any fear because we've come up with all these clever little devices to get rid of the fear, to make it seem like it isn't there. See? So that then leaves us with this problem. How do we discover our fear? Because we have purposely made it so it's really hard to, to notice. Well, what you have to do is not necessarily look at your actions. You have to look at your intents. How do you feel? Look at your emotions. You get angry, but you smile because you know that with experience, that smile when you get angry works better. But you still know that you're angry. You can feel that anger. You can become aware of it. And then you have to say, that's not good. I shouldn't be angry. It's not just a matter of getting along with people and smiling when you're angry. It's a matter of you shouldn't be angry. It's dysfunctional. Then trace that back to the fear and say, why am I angry? Well, I'm angry because that person wasn't giving me credit that I'm due. Oh, that's that ego. Okay, it needs credit. Why does it need credit? Because it fears that it won't be good enough, that it isn't adequate. And the only way it feels adequate is when it gets credit. When it gets stroked, then it feels like it's doing all right. But if it feels like it deserved a stroke and didn't get it, it gets angry. You see, now you're stuck in the ego and, and the fear that's, that's pushing the ego. Then once you get back to that fear, you can say, I'm just not going to do that. When I start feeling that anger well up because I didn't get a stroke that I think I deserved, I'm just going to stop it and say, no, I'm not going to feel that anger. I'm going to just accept that that's just the way it was. I'll just deal with it this time. I won't let it make me angry. Well, it'll probably still make you angry anyway, you see, but maybe a little less so. And keep doing it. Keep after it. As long as you keep that intent focused on, I'm not going to be pushed by this anger. I'm going to let it go. It won't work the first 10 times, maybe the first 100 times, but it will actually get less and less and less. And eventually, if you keep that intent pressure to let that fear go, you will. The fear will go away. And then when things don't go the way you want or you don't get the credit you want, it's okay. You can see it in a larger context. It's not really about me. It's about that person who uh, didn't realize, you know, what the situation was or whatever or this or that, or it's just that this other person's having problems. They got a low quality of consciousness, and that's they're trying to, uh, you know, put me down to make themselves feel good. Well, that's not about me. It's about them. Maybe I can do something to make them feel better, you see, instead of maybe I can smack them and, you know, make them stop, or maybe I can uh, get them fired, or maybe I can 
you know, somehow other, uh, you know, beat them at this game, it's maybe some way you can help them see a bigger picture. So then you don't get angry anymore. You just deal with it. You're a happier person. Life is better. You're not upset. A lot more joy in your life. So you see, it all leads to a place. You just have to consistently keep the purr of your intent on growing up and realize it's not a fast process. If you've been doing this for three months and you just don't see there's a whole lot of progress, probably there is progress, but it's not enough that's dramatic yet. Just keep working at it and working at it and doing it. And eventually, you will change to represent your intent. See, you you modify your own your own being through your intent. Just like you modify probable future through your intent. Intent is the motive force within consciousness. That's the thing that makes consciousness change. So if you have that intent of growing up and you're trying, you're working at it, when you feel that anger, you you it's not that you ignore it or you stuff it. You just try to let it go. You let the anger go. Say, I'm not going to be angry. I'm not going to be upset about this. I'm just going to accept it. It's just the way it is. Just accept it. Go on. Don't be angry about it. See, it's not like stuffing it. Oh, there's that anger. I'm going to stuff it down where I can't see it. That's just, that's what you've been doing. You know, that's just part of the problem is there's that anger. I'm not going to feel angry. I'm going to accept this problem. Well, at first, you're only accepting it about, you know, maybe 50%. And the other 50% still angry. But just keep working at it. It'll get better with time. That intent will eventually change the quality of your consciousness. So that's a choice you make. So there's a choice. Do I get angry or do I accept? You make the right choice, then you move toward lower uh, entropy, higher quality. If you make the wrong choice, then you don't. So we get these choices. Does that explain the connection? Yes, very well. Thank you very much, Tom. One, one small question. Would you say that uh, uh, there is any advantage on uh, seeing the root uh, fear behind the ego devices? Or because you described uh, that uh, it is normal to deal with the ego devices, not to get angry and work with that uh, on, with our intent. Uh, would, that be, uh, would it be advantageous uh, to see the fear that creates those ego devices? Yes, there may be. There may be an advantage. It kind of depends on the individual. Some people, if they try to go back to a root fear, it's too removed from them. They have a hard time working at that. Other people will go back and see that root and go, oh, I see. And suddenly the whole thing kind of goes up in smoke. You see, instead of being this big, ugly fear, once they uh, get it, it's gone. So it depends on the individual, how you work. Um, You probably should try going back to that root fear and seeing if you can't uh, just let that fear go. In other words, let's say the fear is that you're inadequate. Well, what you have to do then is accept that and say, all right, I have this this deep belief, this deep knowing, this deep fear that I'm really not nearly as good as, you know, as what I present. I'm really kind of an inadequate person, and I'm always trying to play catch-up with everybody and everything, and I'm just barely hanging on by my fingernails most of the time, and that just causes this anxiety 
will go back and you say, well, that's it. This anxiety takes me back to this, this root fear. Then you say, all right, I'll just accept that fear. That's just the way I am. I'm going to be an authentic person. And if I'm behind and I can't quite keep up and this, that's just the way I am. I will, I will accept that as a, as a fact. I'm inadequate. I can't measure up. Everybody else is smarter and better than I am. I'll just accept that and go on with my life. Well, once you accept that and that fear is gone and you really do accept it, which again will take some time, you will discover that everybody isn't really better and smarter and whatever than you are. You just thought they were. You see, in other words, the fear turns out to be a paper tiger, not a real tiger, just something that you believed. It turns out to be this belief you had. And when you accept the fear, then the fear no longer has teeth. What you've done is you've pulled the teeth out of the paper tiger because you said, I accept it. I'm not going to let that bother me. I'm just inadequate and I'll be that way. I will come in second in all my races because I just can't do as well as other people can do. All right. Now, I will do what I can do. And whatever I can do, I'm going to do it as well as good and make as best choices as I can with what I can do. And I'm just not going to worry what I can't do and how I measure up with other people. Other people just do whatever they do. I'll do what I do. I'll do it well. I'll make good choices. Let the chips fall where they may. You see, that kind of a thing. And you find out that you're just as capable, just as competent as all these people you were comparing yourself. But this fear made you see them as so much better. And you is always struggling to keep up. You see, so you accept the fear. Then that fear can't bite you anymore. It doesn't have any teeth. You've accepted it. You're not afraid of it anymore. It just disappears, goes into smoke. So if you can do that at the fear level, you can get rid of all of the dozens of behaviors and anxieties and angers and whatever that, may that, that maybe that one fear was expressing, and they all can disappear all at once because you beat the core fear. If you can't do that, if that somehow is beyond your reach, then, or you don't have the courage, see, it takes a lot of courage to say, I'll just accept that. That's the way I am because you don't want to be that way. You don't want to be inadequate. Oh, no, everybody will laugh at me. Everybody will, you know, you have all this, this stuff about being inadequate, being insignificant. Well, if you have the courage to just accept that, you can maybe beat a whole lot of ego behaviors all at once. But if you can't, then one at a time, take those ego behaviors down to where you just aren't reacting that way anymore. So it's like different ways. It's like working at the fear from either from the, you know, the base end or from the higher end, but it all can work. Either way, you can, you can beat the fear by chipping away at it a bite at a time or by ripping it out by the roots. You know, either, either one will, will work. But it, again, it's not a simple process. If you think I'm going to go meditate and rip out one of my fears, you know, it's not going to work that way. You got to say, this is an intent of mine. I'm going to work on this. And meditation is a good place to work on it because when you're, in med when you're meditating, you tend to get closer to the truth of your being level than you will if you're not meditating. So it's a, it's a, meditation is a good place to work on these things. But the key, I guess, is just the steady 24-7 pressure of an intent that wants to grow up and realize that I have to do this by stages. I'm not just going to grow up in a day because I just, I'll need to change myself. You see, that's the thing with, with being authentic. 
when you're an authentic, you just accept yourself as you are. Well, that's good for step one. That's not. You haven't gotten to the end point. That's just step one. Step one, you accept yourselves for, for what you are. Okay. Once you have a good idea of what it is you really are, okay, then you can say, well, I'd like to change that. But before you have a good idea of what you really are, you haven't accepted who you are yet. You're not authentic. How can you change? You don't even know who you are. You don't know what to do. You know, it's like you have no leverage. Then it's it's like you're you know uh, you're fighting smoke. It, it's you can't get any traction. You can't get a grip on the problem. So becoming authentic is step one. All right, this is who I am. I'm inadequate. I'm unlovable. I'm you know insecure. I'm all these things. This is me. I'm just going to live it. I'm going to be me. And then as I see these choices come up, I'll deal with them. And I'll change, and I'll see what happens. I'll just take it from there, try to do my best, and we'll see what happens. And whatever happens, that's good. I'll be making progress. So some people have this idea that being authentic is the goal. Being authentic is just step one. The goal is to get rid of the fear and, and the ego and the beliefs. And being authentic is like square one, where you need to start from. That's basically having the, the, the courage to be honest with yourself and to be who you are and stop living an image. And from there, you change yourself to become as much as you can become.